just in case anyone was wondering, if youth group has been using this room, there's a ping pong ball floating around. Let's see if we can talk that away. We're going to be taking a look this morning uh, in this Gospel of John, this, this ancient account of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's this fascinating uh, book because it was, it was written more than likely by the Apostle John, who, who in his, his old age, as he reflected back on those days that he spent walking with Jesus, he, he looked out at, at the, the church around him, the believers around him, and he desperately wants them to understand. He desperately wants them to not miss the point of what Jesus was doing. So as we come to this text, and, and as there's a tendency in us to, to, to read it as some obscure fact, uh, listen to it like you listen to uh, your, your grandfather, right, who may be telling you a story, but that story always has a point, right? It's a story that always changes, he hopes, a little bit of how you think about the world and how you understand it. And so, too, I think, does the Apostle John, as he tells us this story uh, from a day in the life of Jesus. I'm going to read from chapter 12, starting in verse 12 of the Gospel of John. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of the Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it and heard that it said, <laughs> and the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, 
We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we gather here this morning, Lord, to, to tell hear of, of these conversations and these actions, Lord, things that may seem unbelievable or things that may seem obscure. And yet, Lord, you have preserved these words for our good that we might find life in your name. And so, Father, God, I pray by your spirit you would attend to us this morning to bring life to all these bodies life into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so uh, when I uh, was graduating high school, me and, and a couple of buddies decided that we would uh, leave immediately once we got out of school and go on a, a road trip to go see the world. And, and through some, I have no idea how we arrived at the idea that we would land uh, set our sails for Seattle. If my memory serves correctly, I think it was like because it was the furthest you could possibly drive from Peoria, Illinois, where we lived. It was the furthest major city that you could drive to, uh, obviously remaining within the continental U.S. But anyway, we, we decided to, to set our sails to off to see the world with, you know, like $200 for gas, food, lodging, uh, all of the above. We clearly plan to sleep in the van and, and uh, live life to what adventures we could find. The problem was uh, going off to see the world, starting from central Illinois, uh, means that you have a thousand miles of problems. And the thousand miles are called Illinois, Iowa, South Dakota. I don't know if you've ever had the, the privilege of driving across the breadth of these great states. Uh, but there's, there's not a lot of things new to see in them, right? There's not even, like, cities along the way. Like, there's Des Moines, Iowa, and that's it. Otherwise, you're just driving through fields after fields after fields, which don't exactly bring excitement. And so we sat there, uh, the, you know, with our atlas. This is, of course, before the, the days of cell phones. Um, and, and we... We were like, we're going through South Dakota and we're dying, right? And we're like, well, let's, what about Mount Rushmore, right? Mount Rushmore is right here. This tells you how desperate we were, right? Like a group of four 18-year-olds like, we're going to go to a national monument to bring us some entertainment, right? Uh, but we did, we did. We, and, but we, by the time we got there, it was, it was late and it was dark. And we're like, we'll just, we'll sleep in the car at the foot of, of the hill or, or mountain or whatever you call it. And we'll... We'll go up right when the sun breaks up, and we'll see it, and then we'll go on our way. And so we woke up whenever uh, the sun came up, and we drove up the mountain, and, and we looked out of the windshield of the van, and there you could see just the, the faces of the presidents poking out from underneath. And we looked at each other, and we're like, that's it? Is that the best we got? That's this glorious national monument. It's some dude's faces carved in the rock. That looks exactly like every picture I've ever seen of it. What are we going to do? And, of course, they wanted to, like, charge you to get any closer than that, right? And so we were like, whatever, we're out of here. We're moving on our way. 
right? The, the Mount Rushmore didn't quite make the, the Mount Rushmore of memories from the trip, if you will. We come to this text, and, and it has this glorious name, right? The triumphal entry. Maybe you learned it growing up as a kid in Sunday school, and, and maybe uh, it sounded kind of mysterious, right? This, this kind of glorious entrance where there's people laying their coats out in front of the donkey and, and waving palm branches and, and singing songs. And indeed, and at one level, it sounds kind of triumphant, but... Uh, as I look at this text again, and as you remember the context, right? This is the Sunday before the Friday when Jesus would be crucified. And there's something about it that seems to lose a little bit of its luster. You begin to wonder if it deserves its name. Is the triumphal entry really so triumphant, right? Jesus riding this, this young donkey seems a little less majestic than it does comic relief, right? Jesus coming into this adoring crowd that praises him and, and, and sings his name, claims him the king of Israel, and yet we know that they're so short-lived. Five days later, they would be nowhere to be found. But perhaps... The thing that sets off more than anything that this triumphal entry may be not be so great is these sulking folks sulking in the, in the shadows of verse 19. The Pharisees who had just plotted and said, we will take his life if anyone sees him, arrests him. And they see you look and that we are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. You hear in the words that Jesus is on the precipice of death, and there's something about death that just doesn't seem too triumphant, doesn't it? It seems like death takes away the, the glory of this moment, and yet there's this curious thing. This curious thing is that when John reflects back on this moment, he even says it here in the text, is that his disciples, me, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and they had been done to him. You see, John thought this moment was glorious, not before, not when he saw the crowds. He didn't think it was glorious or noteworthy when he, he watched Jesus on this parade. He thought it was glorious and spectacular after Jesus had died. It was after the death of Jesus that John looked back and said, this is a really important moment, a moment that I must tell these people about. Nay, it's not just important, it's glorious. The glory after Jesus had been glorified, he said. You see, this glory was not in spite of death, but because of death. See, we come and we look at this entry, and it, and it seems to be clouded by death, but it is the death of Jesus that John seems to think gives it its glory. You see, the triumph, the triumph of life that happens in this text lies down the path of death. John thinks that that's what is most important for you to know, and he desires in this text, I think, to prove it to us. So first, he sets off to prove to us that the triumph of life comes down the path of death for Jesus, right? That for Jesus to, to uh, uh, ascertain this glory, for Jesus to ascertain the glory that is due to him, 
he must walk down a path of death. And he's not very coy about it. Do you see here in verse 28 when, when he says, uh, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And glorify it here is every time John mentions it is pointing to the crucifixion, this gruesome death that Jesus will endure. And John insists on that word. John insists that we don't look at this with skepticism, but with realism, that glory happens in his death. Why does he say it's glorious? I think it comes back to this quote that he gives us uh, out of Zechariah. It's verse 15 in John, but it, it's, it's Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament. And Zechariah 9.9 uh, lays out this image. Let me just read to you these two verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from, war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, what John saw in this moment as Jesus rode into Jerusalem was the start. The start of a glorious vision that a kingdom, a king would come to bring a kingdom, a kingdom which would have no use for the devices of war, a kingdom which would, which would set into place peace from sea to sea. And so John looks at this moment and he says, we've got to verse 9, but we're not to verse 10 yet. We've got to verse 9, the king has come riding on the donkey, but we've not yet gotten to verse 10 when he reigns from glory to glory, from peace over all the nations. We've got the first part, but we haven't got the second. What happens in between, John wants to tell us, is the glory of Jesus' death. Because you see, he's telling us that death brings in at least two things. There's two things that Jesus' death brings him that gets us towards verse 10, towards the glory of the new kingdom. The first is that death brings victory over evil. As Jesus is, is looking out at the world, as Jesus is explaining what it is that he does in verse 31, he tells us, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Because you see, to get to Zechariah's vision in verse 10, where, where the, 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 the mechanisms of war, where the soldiers and the swords can be laid down, requires that the evil which prompts men to go to war be laid down. Jesus is saying here in this text that there is something in this world which must be eradicated if real peace is to live the ruler of this world, that there is an active opposition, that there is an active evil, that there is one whose name is Satan who seeks to bring discord and dishonor and horror to this world. And so Jesus says, now, this moment, 
this death, which is, is sitting on the cusp of happening now, is when that ruler of this world will be dismembered. It is now that the ruler of this world will be cast out. It is now uh, when the judgment of this world will occur, when the, the, the mechanism that can bring peace will be shown and highlighted to the world, and the world will reject it. And thus, while they think they are bringing judgment on Jesus, the cross brings judgment on them. The judgment and evil of this world, the hostility and war must be eradicated if we're to get from the donkey to the kingdom. Jesus comes in this moment now, the now the hour of his death. But it doesn't just bring death doesn't just bring victory over evil for Jesus. Death brings in those who are far away. This text has this curious case, right? The curious case of the Greeks. Did you catch it there? In verse 20, it says, uh, it starts, it's almost like it starts a story and then he cuts off, right? He says that those, uh, that there were some Greeks who were there and they come and they, they come to Jesus' disciples and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so one disciple goes to another and, and they come before Jesus with this request, These Greeks want to meet with you. And it's kind of a, a strange thing and it gets even stranger, right? Because Jesus doesn't answer them. Jesus, the text says, Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wait, they just asked you if they could meet with you, if they could see you, and you're saying, no, that now is the time of my glory. It's a weird thing, right? It's a curious thing, but it's not so curious if you look at what it comes in. See, John is using this this. Uh, this device, this literary device to, to help us to see. You see, the last thing that he had told us in verse 19 is he said, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then we have Greeks who come to see Jesus, but you see, the Greeks have a problem. Of course, what they mean is they want to have a conversation with Jesus, but the question that Jesus is answering is not the question that they asked. He's, because Jesus knows that there is another problem if we're going to get from the, the donkey to the kingdom, there's another problem standing in the way, and it is that these are people who are alien to the kingdom of God. There are Greeks, that there are, are people from every nation and tribe and tongue who have not heard of the stories of God, who have not seen his hand as it divided the Red Sea, who have not seen his, his works on the people of Egypt, that there are people there are people who are at odds with God, and they don't even know who he is. And so you see Jesus, was he, when he comes back in verse 32, when he says, And when I am lifted up, when I am nailed to the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Because when Zechariah promised the kingdom, it was a kingdom that was promised peace to all the nations. It was a kingdom that promised that war would not be found from sea to sea. And Jesus knows that those who are farthest away from him can't be a part of his kingdom until he comes to the cross. So Jesus doesn't answer their question, sir, we wish to see Jesus, because in a spiritual sense, they can't see Jesus, at least not yet. 
at least not until this glorious deed that he does on the cross to break down the barriers that gives them access to him. When Jesus dies on the cross, he, co- he goes as the king of Israel, but he goes as the son for all of mankind. Jesus goes to the cross that those who are the farthest away could be found in him. I said all this, I just vomited a bunch of stuff on you, right? A bunch of explanation about this, but, but here's the thing. That notion that comes in your mind that, that looks at this text and goes, well, what's the big deal about this triumphal entry when he's about to die anyway? That notion in you that, that, that rises and says, well, the death kind of takes away some of the, the glory of this moment, right? The brokenness, the bleeding, the gore, is any of that really triumphant? John wants us to see that in order for us to get to the place where peace exists from sea to sea, there is something necessary for Jesus to do before we can get there. And I say that to you this morning because there's something necessary for us to understand about Jesus before we can get there. You see, we need to understand that we are a people who are far away from him. That we are a people who, who naturally and 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 inhabit and in thought have been subject to the ruler of this world. You see, he's not called a ruler because Satan has such great power, but because he has subjects who answer to him, who've been conditioned by the way he thinks about the world, who have been brought up to think about power and glory and might and hope and peace in the way that he thinks about it. I came across this fascinating uh, news article from back in in the Second World War. And it was describing um, this, uh, it was describing this this German attempt by the Nazi party, right, to, to, to rewrite the New Testament. You see, the New Testament and the words of Jesus had had a problem, right? They wanted to be a Christian, right? But, but Jesus talks a lot about Jewish people, for one, right? Which in Nazi Germany caused a lot of problems, but it had this other problem. Jesus keeps insisting that people die to themselves. Jesus keeps insisting that, that when your brother strikes you on the cheek that you turn and offer him the other cheek as well. He, he keeps uh, glorifying these, these uh, beatitudes where he says, blessed are the, the merciful, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor. They said, whoa, 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 we got to redo this. And so the Reich Bishop Ludwig Müller, I don't know, I'm making up that. Uh, how do you, somebody give me some German tra- uh, pronunciation later. Uh, but he, he writes this modernization of the words of God, and he c- includes there things like this. Uh, if thy comrade smite thee in the face in his wrath, It is not always right to smite him back. It is more manly to preserve a superior calm. Mayhap thy comrade will repent. Or or take his sermon on the mount. Blessed is he who knows his, who bears his sorrow manfully. He will find strength not to despair. Blessed is he who keeps good comradeship always. For such is the will of God. You see, these people, if in order for them to, to, to fall into line, for them 
to, to think about life the way that the Nazi party wanted them to think about life. They had to recondition their, their view of weakness and power. They had to recondition them to what was important in the world, namely valor and comradeship, right? Mainly being manly and tough and stoic. In the same way, the ruler of this world puts out information into our beings that says that death is the, only, is the end of all things. He puts into us this notion, right, that, that, that makes the gospel of Jesus completely unintelligible. So we don't, don't just, uh, are, are not just a people who, who wage war. We're a people who think that war is a way to gain peace. Right? He, we're not just a, a people that reject Jesus, but we're a people who can't even understand who he is. Because there are things that block in our way the active activity of the evil one and the, the distance that we have from God. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus comes. And he doesn't just come from a, a donkey to the kingdom because before he can get there, he has to go through death to remove those barriers between us and him. He has to remove the barriers so that we uh, can come to understand that the kingdom of God is not the kingdom that we've been told is the most powerful. But the triumph of life lies down the path of death for Jesus and what Jesus does on our behalf. But there's this other part in this passage and it's that the triumph of life lies down the path of death for us too. See, it would have been really easy for John to make this whole account just about what Jesus is doing, right? There's this great giant monstrosity of a historical event that is happening underfoot. To, to understand that Jesus' glory lie in his death is, is, a, is a powerful and important lesson for us to learn. But in the middle of it, Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Jesus seems to take up this cause to argue that we find the life in through our death, not our physical death, but in dying to ourselves. Here, listen to Jesus' words in verse 23 and on. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, the problem, the reason we don't understand that Jesus' death is his glory is the same reason that we don't think dying a little bit to ourselves, in fact, is something that brings us life. You notice Jesus' words here. He says, whoever loves life will lose it, and whoever hates life in this world will keep it. He doesn't mean like they're depressed or suicidal. He's saying comparatively, right? That, that compared to... to uh, the way that you feel about the life of Jesus, the life, the, the mechanisms for gaining the good life, you will hate, right? The, the, the rules of the Nazi party, the rules of the ruler of this world, right, that is Satan, will all of a sudden, they are things that you must die to in order to see what Jesus 
is doing. That is what Jesus broke the power of the devil, but we must follow him into that death. It's kind of like Jesus has offered us and, and brought us free passage out of Nazi Germany into a, a free country, but we're still holding on to the, the notions of, of manliness and comradeship and anti-Semitism in the new country. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be in a new, if you're going to go, exist in the kingdom of God, if you're going to exist in freedom, if you're going to exist in the kingdom where peace reigns from sea to sea, then you must die to the patterns of that old life. It's like a seed, he says, right? A seed which is, is inanimate and, and hard, right? A, a pile of seeds you could look at, and, and, and they are no different than grains of sand, right? Or, or pebbles or rocks, in fact, you could possibly even confuse them for very small pebbles or rocks oftentimes, right? They're, 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 they're an object that exists but has no use until that world that that seed exists in has been transformed, right? And once they leave the world of this air and are entered into the soil, that that seed rots and dies. And when that seed rots and dies, it is transformed. That the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus comes to die in order that we might be transformed. That as we deny the powers of this world, as we do not keep seeking to try and find life by gaining more power, but by gaining less. Not more freedom um, from rules, but by embracing the, 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 the advice of God's godliness. That it is in dying to ourselves that allows for God's transformative work, the, the conditions in which he does his work in us to change us. And we talk a lot around here about being a, a church that's not for ourselves, about being a, a, church, a, a people right, who don't live for themselves. We argue that if you listen to Jesus and if you follow after Jesus, then you are going to be people who operate and live in God's neighborhood very, very differently from the world around us, right? That we're people who, who experience suffering, but we don't experience suffering in the same way as the world around us, that we are our people who hold our comforts with the loosest of grips because it is in the loss of our comfort that we find the comforter. We're people who, who are generous, who do not keep our money or power for ourselves because we, as we give up and, and die to the powers of this world, we find riches of life in him. We're people who can forgive, who don't need to protect their own honor because our honor is tied up in Jesus and what he brought us. You see, the message of Jesus, the triumph of life, the triumph of what can give you new life is not found in the mechanisms of the old world, but in the mechanisms of the new kingdom. The mechanisms that tell us that we must die to ourselves, that we might be remade in him. But a lot of us look at that 
And all of us struggle with that. Even Jesus struggles in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, he says. To embrace a life that, that dies to itself is not an easy one. It's not a, 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 a one that, that happens with uh, a long line of people excited to do it. But John wants us to see the power of what Jesus' death does because he says that Jesus can bring that life to you. Just as Jesus dies and goes into the ground and is raised to do new life, he says that we can be with him, that we can be transformed into his disciples who are with him in death and transformed into disciples that are with him in his life, that we can be transformed into what he calls the sons of light. Not because we work hard, not because we're excellent people, but because we, we, we believe that Jesus has got our back. That even if we forsake the powers of this world, we find power in him. John wants us to know that the triumph of life, the winning of life, the gaining, the ascertaining of life does not come because Jesus tries to grab a hold of more life, but because he's willing to give it up. John wants us to see that the, the ascertaining, the gaining of real life in God's kingdom is not because we try to hold on to it or grip it tighter or find more, but because we're willing to give it up. The glory of God lies down the path of death, and so does ours. But if our Lord has triumphed over the grave, if our Lord has found victory over the ruler of this age, if our Lord has found victory over this life and death, then so will we. Because where the master is, there the servants will be also. Pray with me. Father God, I pray that you would give us insight and knowledge. Lord, that you would take uh, long and, and confusing ideas, Lord, and that you would make them clear in our brains. Lord, that you would give us a hope that what we see in this world is not the, the, the way this world will be because you died, because you rose to life, we can live with you also. We pray this in Jesus' name.